Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Nika. And I'm Alex. And today we have a guest who I am very excited about. I have been looking forward to having this conversation all week. Me too. And to tell us a little bit more about him, we have our production manager, Yulia, here with us in the studio. Hey guys, thank you. Well, I have also been looking forward to this episode featuring our guest, Jonathan Herzog. Jonathan is a Stern MBA graduate, and some of our New York City-based listeners may recognize his name because he's running for Congress. As you might imagine, he has a super impressive background and is also extremely intelligent and down-to-earth. I have really enjoyed getting to know him, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear from him as well. Sounds awesome. Well, without further ado, cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hey Jonathan, we're psyched to have you in the studio today. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, our pleasure, for sure. Um, we're so really we're really excited to have you here. You're like a Stern alum, also Harvard double alum, um, and you're running for Congress. That is like super incredible, and it's something that I think is on a lot of people's mind right now. Um, but before you got into this really illustrious career in politics and all the cool things that you've done, we really wanted to get to know you a little bit more. Um, so if you could just like bring us. Uh, just introduce yourself in your own words, your 30-second pitch, if you remember that from Stern Days. <laughs> back back to the launch days, right? Um, yeah, well, thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for doing this. So I'm Jonathan Herzog, um, born and raised in New York, grew up in the district. So we're actually in the 10th Congressional District of New York, which is the west side of Manhattan in South Brooklyn. Um, I'm the son of immigrants, and I'm a 2017 Stern alum, block four for anyone who cares. <laughs> And I'm um, an organizer and advocate for universal basic income. Um, it's my passion project and obsession and focus. Um, and it's why I'm running for Congress now in the district. Great. So you grew up near Stern and then went to Stern. So what was growing up in, in Manhattan like? Yeah, so I grew up around um, Hell's Kitchen on, on the mm-hmm. west side. And it involved a lot of cross-town buses and subway rides at an early age and learning how to fall asleep and then wake up miraculously as the doors open. It's a real skill, um, and that's that's what growing up was like, a lot of swimming um, indoors. <laughs> Wait, and, where's the best pools in Manhattan? Ah, uh, that's a very contentious question. Um, Don't tell me I need an Equinox membership. <laughs> <laughs> so I swam at the JCC okay, on the west side. Um and this is just a fun tidbit that you don't care about, but the only ozone-treated pool in New York is at a 92nd Street Y. So if you don't like the smell of chlorine... <laughs> okay, ozone-treated. I'm going to sound super mean? ignorant, but can you please enlighten us? <laughs> ozone-treated. Yeah, so this is just a reflection of like the kind of nerd I was growing up, where um, I was really interested at a young age on the effects of different disinfectants. Apparently, there's lots of different ways to treat a pool. So there's bromine, there's UV, there's chlorine, there's ozone. So if you go to the 92Y, they actually use ozone as a means of disinfecting their water. 
how do you bottle ozone? I remember like I couldn't spray hairspray because that would like cause a hole in the ozone. But how do you get ozone? <laughs> so it's some very complicated um, industrial process in some separate space. You got it. But yeah, fun fact of the day. <laughs> well, I think you need that level of healthy curiosity to accomplish all the things that you've accomplished <laughs> in such a, at such a young age. Um, awesome. So growing up in Manhattan, were there any formative moments during your childhood that brought you to follow a career um, in politics or a career in advocacy for, as you mentioned, UBI and other other um, things? Yeah. So I think there, there are a couple of big juncture moments. Um, I think one is just first being being the son of immigrants and growing up in, in the system, you have to kind of reverse engineer it for yourself. And so you're like, well, what's this thing we call um, a liberal arts degree? <laughs> what's this thing we call the SADs and the APs and kind of figuring out the system from the inside? Um, and so that, that, that level of um, kind of perspective and different framework um, definitely pushes you to question um, the status quo and the, the set of um, strictures as they are. Um, I think one other facet of um, why I came to, to fight for, for universal basic income is um, growing up gay in a, a fairly conservative um, household. And so also having that level of um, sort of tension and kind of outsiderness. Um, and so I think those, those two perspectives um, have shaped a lot of my um, worldview and kind of approach. And um, unwillingness to accept the fact that in the 10th district in the world's financial capital in 2019 and the richest, most advanced society in our history, 16% of people can't meet their basic needs. And um, that's crazy to me. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so you'd represent a pretty diverse group of people in the 10th district. NYU would be inclusive of that. So yes. a lot of us maybe vote in our home districts <laughs> mm -hmm. or vote absentee, but a lot of the people that you'd be talking to on this podcast are, are your constituents. So um, how would you say that UBI and some of the policies of Andrew Yang, which I think you are, you're a supporter of, um, I know that, uh, would you say apply to NYU students and just the student experience? Totally. Yeah. So lot lot to unpack there. Um, so I came back to Stern a couple of weeks ago um, doing a chat at the Stern Policy Forum. Um, and one of the things I asked um, folks in the room was, like, raise your hand if you want to start a business of your own or be your own boss. And, like, half the hands in the room went up. And I was like, me too. We all, we all come to business school. We all want to pivot and figure out what we want to do with our lives. Um, but a lot of us want to be, you know, be the leaders of our own enterprises. And then, in turn, no surprise, we all know, I asked, well, so what are you going to do after graduation? What do you have kind of lined up? And the answer was essentially work for Amazon. <laughs> um, and no, no knock on, on anyone's choice. These are the um, multi-decade dynamics uh, of our economy at play. And so, in short, the reason this matters to folks here at Stern and all the tens of thousands of university students here in the district is... The goal of the freedom and the goal of building a more human-centered economy is to help us do the work we want to do and lead the lives we want to live. Right now, um, we're just laden up with tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. Um, and we have a set of incentives and social rewards um, and culture pushing us in one way. Mm -hmm. 
so that we're all basically doing five things in five cities in five sectors, and we know what those are <laughs> by the data. And so the goal is to just open up and free us up to live happier, more joyful lives of purpose and meaning. Um, and so when I came to um, one of our student admit weekends, the dean at the time was Peter Henry, and he said, you all are here because you want to do good while doing well. And the theme of the campaign and the theme of our time is that that relationship is becoming more and more attenuated. It's becoming harder and harder for more of us to um, do one and the other. So, so that's the hope, is to just free us up to be um, the happy, healthy, productive people we want to be and maybe add value and create new enterprises the way we want to. That sounds great. Um, I'm wondering how on your journey did you come to this, this set of values? Was what, what parts came from your childhood? What came from Harvard? What came from this building here, Stern? Yeah, that's a great question. So most proximately, um, and you mentioned Andrew Yang. Um, so last year when he announced his, quote, longer than long shot bid, according to the New York Times for presidency, um, I read the launch article and saw the video and I said, this is our next president. He's the only guy addressing the elephant in the room, the forces tearing our country apart, which is, by the data he looked at, we automated away millions of manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, in the swing states that Donald Trump had to win. So we blast away 4 million manufacturing jobs. Those districts swing to Donald Trump. And we are scapegoating immigrants um, for the problems technology is causing in our economy. What Yuval Harari and other experts call the fourth industrial revolution, the greatest technological shift in our time. And what we did to manufacturing jobs, we're doing to retail jobs, to administrative and call center jobs, fast food jobs, and truck driving jobs. That's half of all jobs in our economy. That's I don't what... even think lawyers are safe, to be honest. I think <laughs> even like high-skilled, high, quote-unquote, high-skilled jobs mm -hmm. are being automated. Yes, and that's that's the thing. It's it's not a them issue. It's not a, um, a working class uh, issue. It's an us issue. My, my friends are working on... Um, AI and machine learning driven startups, mm. tossing all the buzzwords you want. <laughs> That's how you up your fundraising. Um, to automate primary care, to automate corporate legal work, to automate investment banking trading floors. 40% of all work, as you suggest, is either repetitive manual or repetitive cognitive work. Mm -hmm. And much of the work we do, have been trained to do, our education system trains us to do, and rewards is in the repetitive cognitive bank which is a task that follows a loop-like function with small um, iterations and changes. So that was the central challenge that he said we need to address. It's the force tearing us apart. And the first step, the foundation, is a freedom dividend, um, a universal basic income of 1000 bucks a month to help tens of millions of people transition through this tumultuous time. And it kind of sounds far out, but then you realize it's been with us for a long time. From the founding with Thomas Paine, Martin Luther King fought for it in the, the year before he was assassinated. And today, Elon Musk, Sam Altman, um, and a lot of techies um, and labor leaders alike have endorsed it. It's being trial run in Stockton. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's being privately financed in Stockton and the Mississippian cities all across the country. But the crazy thing is that 50 years ago, this was so mainstream and so beltway that the federal government was doing that we were actually doling out cash transfers to communities directly. Hmm. Um, and now, and this is, again, just a microcosm of our um, economy as a whole, we've outsourced that to a handful of private philanthropists who don't have the scale and the scope um, of the federal purse. 
So that was the proximate chain. Um, hearing this fellow, this um, unknown entrepreneur, Andrew Yang, who actually started the, or was the CEO of a test prep company we, uh, we, all, we all probably used, called Manhattan Prep, mm-hmm. ring a bell. Yeah. <laughs> back Invented to the, for America. Yes, back to the, back to the GMAT, GRE days, the fun, fun days. Um, but, but in terms of the kind of values that drive it, um, it's just a fundamental belief that we can't let the country burn down around mm-hmm. us. <laughs> and um, if we have the agency and ability to do something about it, we sure as heck better do it. And you took quite a leap then hearing Andrew Yang. You were doing your JD at Harvard Law School. That's right. And you left partway through, right? And started yes, working. Yes, and I have page. a mother. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how, how did you come to make that decision and, and how did you get involved in the campaign uh, itself? Yes. So I basically was volunteering and organizing. Um, and I was like, this is, this is it guys. Like, don't, <laughs> don't, don't you get it? <laughs> and at that time, no one, like very few people did. Um, and basically last year it was, um, move out to Iowa, join the campaign as the, as the sixth hire and just build it from the ground up. We got to build a wave um, in other parts of the country and bring it crashing down on DC because we sure as heck know the movement ain't going to start there. Um, and so that was that was the need, that was the the opportunity. What got me in that moment to say yes, I'll drive thousands of miles around a state alone <laughs> for for a while. That's a great question. Um, just a sense of of urgency and a sense of. Um, possibility, maybe delusion, maybe, um, yeah, just that this is, this is how, this is, this is the only way we kind of move the ball forward. Mm-hmm. I didn't really mm-hmm. see another choice. <laughs> I think a lot of people kind of sprung into action after 2016 and, um, and whenever, when you hear that charismatic voice that is telling you there's another way, I, I totally relate to it. I am a, a, I used to volunteer for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, nice. Um, so I, I definitely I the understand sticker. the like cult-like feeling <laughs> of like a campaign that you really feel like you're doing something and the urgency of the moment, um. It's very powerful. Yeah. Um, so when you're in Iowa, the yeah. sixth employee, what does that entail? Is that I know that Yang's like um, social media strategy has been pretty good uh, digital marketing. But <laughs> were you like knocking on doors? Were you um, getting field operations up in order? Like, what does it look like? Yeah. Like, what the heck does a day in that life look like? <laughs> so there's a lot of like fancy terms that are tossed around. Um, I'm going to try to avoid them. Um, basically, you hop in a car. You drive for three hours, you speak at a union hall or a church or a school or some local gathering of Democrats. It's very interesting how democracy works in some parts of the country. Because <laughs> here in New York, we're like, what? You gather and you talk about like the issues of the day? I mean, some people do it, but um, you go there, you make the pitch. It's me, um, it's a rep or the actual candidate from Klobuchar, from Pete, from Marianne, from any other of the 20,000 other campaigns that are there. Um, you get some signatures, you hand out some buttons, you wrap up, you drive three hours, you do the same thing across the state. <laughs> um, and then, that, so it's a very human process, um, you know, in terms of like business functions, you might think of it. Um, so it's like an early stage growth startup. At least that was my experience. Um, so you were the one kind of giving the pitch and like um, serving as a surrogate of Andrew Yeah, so it's like, it's a sales and it's an operations and it's a... I don't know, what are the other functions? <laughs> like basically all the all the early stage startup um, 
hats you would wear to get the message out there um, and get people on board. So Andrew Yang isn't president yet. I'm sure he needs <laughs> a, a ton of help. Um, you decided to kind of uh, get, I don't know if you're still involved with the campaign, but kind of now self-direct uh, yeah. to your to your own campaign. Yeah. So what inspired you to make that change? And are you, um, yeah, what does that look like now as your own spokesperson? Yeah, yeah. So kind of keeping with the, the early stage growth um, analogy, we, we hit an inflection point um, in February of this past year um, where he joined the Joe Rogan podcast, which y'all are almost at the size of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I kind of reached a point where I was like, they, the question came up over and over again, well, how do you get the Humanity First platform and the Freedom Dividend through Congress? And if history tells us anything, it's not enough to have an executive um, in office. We actually need a House united on a certain legislative platform to get it through. And so I saw the opportunity, um, you know, back home in my district and said, we can actually do this thing. It's literally this straightforward. If we get 15,000 people, 2% of all people who live in the 10th district, to get behind a vision of a more human-centered economy, then we've won the seat. That's just the math of it. Um, because in the only primary election we've had in the district for 20 years, 4% of people voted. So we can totally do it um, next June and bring it all the way. That's awesome. So you're, you're running against Nadler, but then I'm also, I'm sure that there, it's also a semi-crowded field in terms of other progressives that you um, are running against. How do you kind of um, create kind of a multi-pronged campaign that kind of um, challenges the incumbent, but then also makes uh, allowances for the other contenders? Yeah, so... I think the, the, the spirit of it has kind of been um, to not campaign negatively against anyone <laughs> um, and just really make the affirmative case and affirmative vision for what um, our economy and our future can look like. And it's kind of crazy, but in many ways, Stern was a perfect um, training ground for that because it makes us view the world in very data-oriented, analytical ways. And so one of the questions is, you know, going back to the, well, how do you do good while doing well um, for yourself is we literally are following um, one particular metric or three three big metrics in our economy. Those are stock market growth, unemployment, and GDP. And so we know in our businesses and our enterprises, if we're following the wrong numbers, then we're screwed. And so part of the goal of the campaign um, is to change the metrics of our economy so that actually doing good is doing well. So if we create a more inclusive set of GDP measurements, like life expectancy, like quality of life, like happiness, like environmental quality, and we actually bake in those numbers, which we have numbers for, as a measurement of economic growth and progress, then if you set out and you want to start a business that makes kids um, stronger and healthier or makes the environment more sustainable and cleaner, that's economic growth. That's progress. Um, so, so that's really the goal is to um, build the case and build the vision for um, an economy that just works for us. Is that part of, uh, on your website, you have your campaign listed as evidence-based universal <laughs> liberalism? Could you uh, elaborate on uh, that term? Yeah. It's basically just like start with the data. Start with the numbers. Start with, you know, actually, I'll try to bring it back to Stern. Like, we had this business ethics course or whatever, I don't know, professional, professional responsibility. Professional responsibility. Yes, I did yes. it, like, last weekend. The bane of everyone's <laughs> existence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But um, what one of the things we we talked about, or I, I brought up in that conversation, was empiricism, and the or just the belief in objective truth and fact. Um, and in today's day and age, there's, there's a lot we don't agree upon, um, but we have to agree upon basic facts and truth. So that's what the um, evidence-based part is to say. Um, and the universal liberalism um, just means that we should build and invest in all people as a right of citizenship. Um, and that's, that's part of the goal of something like the Freedom Dividend, where you're like, wait, the median income in the 10th district, you might say, is $93,000. Why should you know, an, an, an MBA grad get the Freedom Dividend? Well, you are a citizen and a shareholder of the same country as every other citizen. Um, and so you, too, um, deserve a dividend and a, and a return on your inherent net worth as a human being. Um, and so that's what universal liberalism is. It's just that our policies and our values and our vision should apply equally to everyone. From Jeff Bezos to service workers. <laughs> I think that's like one of the exactly. things that people kind of bring up with UBIs that well, why should Jeff Bezos get this freedom dividend? Yes. And I think that was a good response. Yes, and and in the case of a Bezos, um, who's now worth like what the eighty billion he or so post divorce. He makes more than any of us make in a year. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, he's going to be paying so much more into the system, right? If we look uh, at the um, revenue side of a universal basic income, he's going to be paying. Um, tens of millions into it because of the value-added tax mechanism. Yeah, can you talk about the value-added tax? It's going to be a tax on corporations that um, yeah. benefit from this rise in automation. How does that work? Yeah, so basically, if we take, again, really a lot of this emanates from our Stern MBA One core. Yeah. Did Andrew Yang take it? <laughs> <laughs> so if we think about like um, this phone or any um, any product we're sold, there's aluminum, there's glass, there's silicone, there's so many different components and parts of the value chain um, that our classmates and friends are in the business of optimizing, right? That, that supply chain. So the value added tax, the way we pay for this freedom dividend, gives us, the public, the people, a slice of every single part of the value chain. Um, so a value added tax is what every other industrialized economy has um, at twice the level that's being proposed. And so someone like Jeff, um, he doesn't have a, a taxable event. So if we're like, we're going to ratchet up your income tax at 70 80%, he's going to be like, sounds good. Because you know what I do with my tens of millions of dollars? I send it into corporate buybacks or invest in them blue origin, literal spaceships. So if we set a value added tax, we can actually get some of the gains from new technologies and from AI. Because right now... In 2019, the top five market cap companies in our economy, we know them, we use them every single day. The Amazon, the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Ubers of the world, Netflix, pay literally zero in federal taxes. Um, and why is that? Because we don't have a mechanism in place to capture some of the gains of AI and new technologies. And that's what the value added tax would do. Awesome. So UBI is just one pillar of like a kind of three pillar policy platform that you're running on. So universal basic income, Medicare for all, and democracy dollars. Um, can you speak a bit more about Medicare for all and democracy dollars? Is Medicare for all kind of the same platform, the same policy that Bernie Sanders is pushing, or is it is it a different view on that? So 
I'll say generally speaking, again, the kind of goal and the the reason this matters to like externees and prospectives and students here is again, like think about the business you want to start or the dream job you you would have. Right now we have this thing called job lock, right? Where because your healthcare benefits we set up a century ago um, are tied to your employer for the most part. You're like, oh wait, I can't change my job. I can't do the thing I want to do. Because if I leave it, I literally won't have healthcare. So the so the goal of Medicare for All is to have a competitive public option where the government competes on prices. And we all want the cheaper, higher quality, better access option. Um, again, just so that we can all do the work we want to do and start the companies we want to start and not be fearful um, that we'll lose our healthcare. And the same goes for democracy dollars. It's just... Um, public financing of our, our elections. Could you walk us through what that is a little bit? Yeah. So basically, um, when you turn 18, so think about this future, right? You're graduated from high school, um, and when you turn 18, everyone gets $100 a year in a voucher um, that you can allocate to any federal candidate of your choosing. Right now, I can tell you this as someone who's running for, for office, is there's like real people, real humans, like sternies and, you know, people all around the city. And then there's money. And if you haven't met congressional candidates or if they haven't come knocking down your doors, it's because you don't have money yet. <laughs> Give it like 10, 20, 30 years and they'll be calling you like crazy. <laughs> um, the goal is to align the two. And that's the whole theme and purpose of the campaign is to align our incentives so that our, our preferences and our values are actually reflected in our government. Because right now, if you're elected into Congress, you spend half of your time, on average, just calling rich people for money. That's absurd. And that distorts all of our priorities. And if you care about gun safety or climate change or anything to pass in the legislature, we need to basically go, again, let's take some operations class lessons here, <laughs> <laughs> root cause analysis, <clears throat> right? Look at the origin, look at the source of the money. Um, and oftentimes that's where you'll see the policy distortion start. Awesome. So that's an interesting like future state. I'm wondering, is your current campaign people funded or, or do you currently accept like corporate PAC money? A lot of people have kind of a lot of politicians have kind of made that distinction. Where do you stand on that? Yeah. So definitely 100 percent people funded. Awesome. <laughs> I think we um, hypocrisy is a really terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I have very little patience for. Um, and um yeah, I think we have to um, emulate and live the kind of values and world we want to to create and build ourselves. Awesome. So earlier you were talking about um, when you were at Stern yes. and people uh, wanting to be entrepreneurs but then ending up at Amazon. Yes. And, you know, we are not yet in this future state that you're imagining. So I'm curious, what were you proud of during your time at Stern? Mm. And what do you wish you maybe had done differently mm. if you had lived in... The, the future job yes. in her Also, maybe world. where did you intern? Because I'm interested yeah. in Ooh, hearing yes. that. <laughs> lots, okay, lots of good stuff. Okay, so the first thing that came to mind when you said that was, um, I remembered I entered, I like blocked this out of my mind because of a traumatic experience, but I I entered the Berkeley Venture Competition. Does that ring a bell? Mm -hmm. It's like that thing where they're like, we'll give you money if you have a good idea. Yeah. My idea at the time, I thought this was genius, <laughs> pure genius, 
It was called, actually, if someone wants to, here, ready? Here's an idea you can make zero dollars out of. <laughs> it was called Oasis, and it was meant to be the soul cycle for swimming. You heard that right. You're spo- so I was like obsessed with something, and I was like, "Wait, why don't we have any boutique fitness class? And why aren't they ozone disinfected?" Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and so it was meant to be like a boutique fitness class for swimming. Um, not a good idea. <laughs> not a sustainable like business structure. But um, it was a great, great experience um, putting together the pitch um, and getting knocked down and told you're crazy. Um, so. Your question was, what would you have done differently? And then what did I do? Okay, I'm not answering either. <laughs> um, Very political of you. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> um, okay, so where did I work? I got a SIF. They still have that oh, social yeah, impact internship fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so I highly recommend it. It's so generous compared to most places. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a SIF fellowship to work at Mayday US, um, which was a super pack to end all super packs. Um, Great, great experience. Loved it and was so grateful um, to I, – I recommend everyone to do it if you can. And then I worked at um, um, Goldman my second summer in between uh, business school and law school. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So a lot of it isn't theoretical. I've actually been in these places. <laughs> um, what I have done differently? Hmm. What is the place <laughs> upstairs called again? Um, oh my gosh, Sosnoff Cafe. Sosnoff, okay, I would have eaten there less. Oh my gosh, I've <laughs> eaten there once. <laughs> okay, well, cool. I'm doing, I'm doing right by you then. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad. Okay, so the carrots and the hummus are good. The baggies are good, <laughs> but like beyond that, just you, you gotta venture out. I sh- so I should have ventured out more. Okay, that's good. Well, you're from here, so I feel like you might have not been so entranced by all the like amazing food options in Manhattan. Mm, yes or no? Well, okay, so I think they they invented like maple. Does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. But that's, yeah, that ended. it's like gone, yeah. right? So there were like six or so like meal service deliveries mm-hmm. that everyone got obsessed with, and everyone uses Meal Pal right now, mm-hmm. which oh, isn't Pal, okay. the best for vegetarians. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot. So it's a very saturated market, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot. Of, that was a lot of how we ate back in the day. Awesome. And you, okay, elephant in the room. You're very young. I you am very. Young. Mentioned <laughs> the Berkeley. Like, you were a Berkeley scholar. Yeah. You were in the, an entrepreneurship competition. Fancy name for just, like, young in. So yes. Like, what are we young. doing? Um, how was that experience, coming into a situation in which you're, like, a good five, six, sometimes ten years younger than your classmates? And, um, yeah, what was that experience like? I'm really curious. Yeah. Um, I I thought it was great. I felt very lucky to be here. Um, and in many ways, I would not be doing what I'm doing now or have had the good fortune of um, just exploring and experimenting because that that lowered the stakes um, of my being here a lot. Um, and so that was incredible. It was really, really awesome. I spent a lot of my time here not in Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time abroad, actually. Um, did all the DBIs I could um, and studied abroad. And so it was really, really, really eye-opening. And I'm, yeah, just incredibly grateful for it. Where did you study abroad? Where did you do DBIs? And what was the most impactful for you out of all that experience? Oh my gosh. Um, this is such a throwback. Um, it's a DBI in Shanghai, in Costa Rica. I went to, I did some class in Copenhagen. Hmm. I did a semester in Sydney. Um, there's probably more in there, but it was just incredible. Um, it's such a great program and really unique to Stern, I think. You majored in psychology undergrad. 
Mm-hmm. You came to Stern. I did. You did a lot of travel abroad. You did the Berkeley competition. You worked at Mayday. You worked at Goldman. You went to Harvard Law. What's the What's the common thread? How does this all mm. sort of come together into to you and your current campaign? Yeah, you're like, what's this random mishmash? <laughs> um, I think the common thread is very rooted in our own humanity. So psychology, right, it's just a study of human behavior. Um, like a lot of these fields and a lot of um, all the moats around these industries and, I, and the academy are just like fancy words to block you out. And you're like, wait, I understand this stuff too. Um, it's just like the study of us as people, how we relate to each other, how we relate to organizations. Um, so my, not that you asked, my thesis was on self-deception, <laughs> <laughs> the ways in which we lie to ourselves um, and how that affects our behaviors. Um, and then we kind of just scale that up in business school, right? It's the organizations and institutions that people, humans create, um, to have functioning markets and to create value. Um, and then the law is just the kind of guardrails that we set up to guide human behavior in all our interactions with one another. Um, and then working in the attorney general's office and Mayday and, um, Goldman and a law firm, it's just, um, different parts of our economy and different parts of, um, the ways we organize human life. And that's that's the common thread is just like how we function and operate as people um, without being at each other's throats. Awesome. So all those things could just be like different ethnographic studies that you did. Like, almost like I could see him with his little anthropologist pad and taste taking notes that he could use for later. Um, awesome. So I'm sure that really all those different viewpoints and experiences really prepared you for all the different personalities and challenges that you'll be facing in the coming months. Um, as somebody who's running a campaign, how big is your team? What does your day-to-day look like? Um, I'm sure you're like around district mostly, but do you travel elsewhere? Yeah. And so I guess it kind of goes back um, to one of your earlier comments where I'm like, I don't see myself as a politician. I hope people, people don't, where it's like, the whole point of this is just to show, um, I mean, A, is, is to win and to pass the policies, but it's to show that if you actually like kind of reverse engineer and look at the rules of the system we have, we actually do theoretically live in a democracy, where if you want to run for Congress, there's two, I think there's essentially two hurdles. Be 25 by the day of the inauguration and have been a resident of the United States for seven years. That's it. So we've been kind of brainwashed into thinking that our government and our representatives are some separate class that's unattainable or not not us, right? Um, but it is, and it was designed to be that way. So in terms of like what what the team looks like, um, again, it's kind of it's kind of weird because I come from the gang world, which is like AI and tech and software powered and social media driven. Um, and really grew organically from long-form podcast conversations. Um, and a lot of really, really passionate volunteers from all over the country. Um, and that's the crazy thing, is that it really is just people who want to see a better future for themselves <laughs> and realize that no one's going to do it for us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. So can you demystify the process a bit? What yeah. does it take to like announce your candidacy? Or I'm sure there's a bunch of paperwork. Yeah, so that's a great way of putting it. It's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> so you, so basically you Google FEC Form 1, then you Google again, new tab, FEC Form 2, you open a bank account, um, and then you enter your name, 
and then you file them. You submit it online, and then you are a candidate. You officially declare. <laughs> um, and then ideally, you, you have some set of policies or vision or reason you're running, and then you just share them online. So when did this process happen for you? When did you? Yeah, yes. like um, just a couple of weeks ago, like oh, wow. a month and a half ago or so. So pretty you. recent. Awesome. <laughs> and, and how did you feel at that moment? Was it sort of anticlimactic since it's just submitting a, an online form? Or, <laughs> or how, what, what were the emotions you were feeling at that time? Yeah, um, I guess it's like, you know, it's strangely simple but strangely um, bureaucratic and cumbersome and a lot of a lot of barriers to entry that um, you're like, oh, I get I get why only you know, a certain group of people does this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, part of the hope as well to, is to is to streamline and to um, make our government more tech savvy, make it easier to vote, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and just bring all the lessons or s some of the lessons from how to create an effective organization um, into the highest realms of government. <laughs> <laughs> and now that you're running and also after having worked with Andrew Yang for a while, I'm curious what, what, what's, what would be the most surprising thing that someone not at all in the process mm. would uh, find about the political process? Mm. So... I feel like we all have this latent sense that money kind of drives the system. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if it's surprising, but once you're in it, once you're um, in the guts of it, you kind of see how the sausage is made. It's 10 times worse than you could ever imagine. Um, and that's a bummer. <laughs> um, but the other, I guess, flip side of that is again, there's literally nothing stopping on a national level, a majority of citizens from declaring themselves a dividend. And on our local level here in New York, literally 15,000 of us for declaring a new direction for the district and for the country. So that's that's what the numbers um, empower us. But the system itself, ooh, I get it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a freaking mess. <laughs> Could you see something like the Freedom Dividend or even Medicare for All, which has like um, majority support in the American yeah. public, passing through a, like a Republican-held uh, Senate if, say, Mitch McConnell is still in charge? How do you uh, re reconcile that challenge? Yeah, so, so, so a couple of points on that. One is, um, and this is part of why I'm running, is the best way, you know, there's this principle in like entrepreneurship. It's like you can let someone else do it or you can do it yourself. Um, and it turns out that a lot of times we got to do it ourselves to make it happen. So that's kind of why I'm running. Uh, but in terms of the Senate, um, which you have to be 30 to run for Senate and have lived in the district for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years or something. Um, it's a real challenge. Um, the hope is we will um, be able to flip both both houses, both, um, both the Senate um, and the House. <laughs> But the great thing about this Freedom Dividend, this Humanity First movement, is it has bipartisan support. And so Andrew, for example, is one of the only two candidates who gets more than 10% of former Trumpers um, to vote for him. Um, and the reason being is that a lot of conservatives and libertarians like the idea of individual autonomy and freedom and choice um, and the government not making those choices for you. So in... In many ways, the the hope is, is is we can actually build that coalition and 
they'll they'll come on board because they 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 don't want to be the um, the ones stopping their district and their state getting fifty million dollars extra in investment a month. In a media landscape that is so fragmented, though nowadays, with a unique situation like this that is somewhat bipartisan, how do you? What is your strategy to 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 reach people on the far left, on the far right, who actually agree with with UBI and the other pieces of your platform? Yeah. So, so a lot of it is just um, social media, frankly, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in terms of just making the case. Um, podcasts, what you guys are doing, um, because in many ways it's incredibly simple. Ready? It's like you get a thousand bucks a month, you get a thousand bucks a month, we all get a thousand bucks a month. <laughs> but in many ways, there's much deeper um, macroeconomic trends and the effects of technology and the economy that we can dive into only in a longer form conversation. And so that's kind of been the secret sauce of the Yang campaign. That's how it grew: um, is long form, substantive policy-based conversations. Um, and then you realize people land on it in different ways. People land on it from a progressive lens. They're like, oh, MLK was fighting for this as, as a civil rights um, fight. Or they say, oh, Milton Friedman was fighting for it as a libertarian fight. And so many different perspectives and lenses um, from labor leaders to techies um, end up falling, it, falling on it on their own terms. So I can see something like that attracting people from both poles. But then do you think there are parts of your platform that might then be caustic to these groups? Since, I mean, I would assume that people who voted for Trump might not be in agreement with people who voted for Bernie or Hillary on a lot of parts of your platform. Is that something you have to, like, when you're speaking to different audiences, change your message? Or are you pretty consistent? So I think the kind of um, the reality and kind of magic of it is we actually all kind of want most of the same things. And you're right, we do disagree on maybe 10% of these things. Um, but the the goal and the, um, the actual experience has been that most people just wanna provide for themselves, provide and kind of build a family and a life um, unencumbered. And um, that's, that's really been the, that, that's kind of been the experience so far. Awesome. So you've been doing a lot with your life so far. <laughs> I think people at Stern would love to know uh, how you do it all and what productivity tips you might have for them as they are feeling overwhelmed with uh, recruiting and school and extracurriculars and, you know, not even running for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay. Let's see. Productivity tips. So I did download – I downloaded this um, Gmail app called Sorted. Um which, like, I don't use. It just kind of sits there and I, like, hide the taskbar. Because <laughs> someone was like, oh, this is a great productivity tip. You should use this. It hasn't been helpful at all. Um, <laughs> but I think the most important thing for productivity and is constantly, constantly, constantly asking yourself, what do I want? What's my goal? What's what's the what's the real, real reason I'm doing what I'm doing? And am Am I aligning that with how I spend my day today? Um, and that's like a not particularly helpful productivity tip. <laughs> but if we can but, like pull it back to like UBI, you talk about a lot of work is repetitive. Re- like what did you call it? Cognitive repetitiveness yeah, yeah, or manual repetitiveness? Yeah, yeah. If maybe you can work smarter, not harder, and find ways to yes, do that. Yes, that would I love be kind it. Of... Okay, so wait, so <laughs> um, 
Have you guys had Sonia Marciano? Mm-hmm. I wish. I did. Okay. I did for strategy, advanced mm-hmm. strategy. Strategy. Okay. So she is like the gem of this institution. <laughs> I encourage everyone to take her course. She says, and this is actually a better answer to your question. She says, we should sock puppet. Mm-hmm. Remember this? Okay. Mm-hmm. So for those who hasn't, um, haven't heard of it, and you can probably do it better, um, but she says her daughter went to this class or something. Mm-hmm. And one project was you have to deliver like a sock puppet for English class. So one of the students came in with like a paper bag and like a Sharpie driven, you know, but I'm not doing it well. <laughs> Someone else like took their sock off and then in class and was like, here's my sock puppet. And her daughter came home and she's like, mom, we have to get glitter. We have to like make this thing all snazzy and fancy and spend lots of time on it. And then it turns out they all pretty much got like an A minus or like a B plus on the project. And so her whole thesis of like enterprise growth and really like productivity on a, on a personal sense is sock puppet the shit that doesn't matter and then invest, invest, invest in the stuff that does. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is like, well, what does matter? Mm-hmm. And that's the question we have to keep asking ourselves and the people around us all the time. Because as you said, it's like spend your time um, working smart, not, not necessarily working always the hardest. Another thing that Professor Marciano said that I like follow, even though I didn't have her class, was if you're getting a 4.0 in the best city in the world, you're doing something wrong. So I was like, <laughs> so okay, that's, so my, <laughs> that's my excuse for sleeping in and, you know. <laughs> yeah. She's full of gems. Um, so no, not work related at all. What do sure. you do for fun? What do you, we're, we're in the greatest city in the world. Yeah, um, you're, yeah. um, you probably have a good network of friends here. How do you relax? Sure. Okay. So what did I watch recently? This is kind of a mm, okay. So I watched The Great Hack on Netflix. I watch a lot of like content online. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I do. So YouTube and Netflix, The Great Hack, um, which is terrifying. You should watch it. Um, I started The Politician, which is like oh. very interesting. <laughs> they just have ads for that. They're yes, they're mm-hmm. everywhere. They're everywhere. Spicy. <laughs> very very spicy. Yes. Um, and then I kind of like try to work out when I can. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the why? Are you in the, the ozone-cleaned mm, gym? Def not the why. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've gotten into more, like, heavy lifting. Actually, mm-hmm. Nate, Nate Pettit, um, oh. another rock star here another in the fave. faculty. Um, I'm nowhere near his level, like, not even a fraction of it, but I love that kind of intensity of, um, of weightlifting, too. Oh, awesome. When I can. Little personal goals on the side. <laughs> but, yeah, definitely lots of, like, TV online. Who, like, are you like the rest anymore. of us and waste a bunch of time on Instagram and Twitter? Or are you like oh my gosh, flawless I didn't even and get never to do that? that? <laughs> yes. No, please. Um, the scariest thing, if you really want to like, if I want to feel bad about myself, is look at the screen time on my phone. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Can, wait, can we do this actually? No, I'm not going to be called out. <laughs> on, on three, we're all going to say our screen time for the last week. Mm, I, I know. I know checked mine I like three days ago. <laughs> one, two, three. Six hours. Eight hours. Okay. <laughs> Do you know it off the top of your head? Of course I do. Oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> I have the uh, time limit on my Instagram I have that time constantly limit on comes Instagram up too. and then like ignore for the day, ignore uh, for yeah. the day. See, that, that's, she's got to get a productivity tip. You got that. At least I know. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to be told that I'm doing something bad, but then still do the bad things. Oh, interesting. I don't want to be told. <laughs> I feel like it's hard for you because you have now your social media is your public mm. persona. So, I how love do you that change excuse that? and I appreciate that. <laughs> This is this is really a big challenge. Actually, Jonathan Haidt, um, one of the faculty here, he's also a gem. Um, and some of the research he's contributed to is um, literally Instagram and Twitter and social media is causing 
we can we can say causal now, a spike in anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. And that's tragic. <laughs> like, we can kind of joke about it and, like, you know, I'm like, eight hours? Wow, that's a lot. To name drop another professor, Scott Galloway, keep citing yes. that the rise, yes. it's like 80% rise in cutting for teenage yes. girls because mm. linked yes. to social media. Yes. It is terrifying. And this, again, is just um, a really jarring microcosm of the broader thing we talked about before, which is think about our, you know, brightest, most talented um, engineering friends or people with, with you know, um, tech or CS backgrounds. Their bottom line... Like, these aren't malicious, evil people, but their bottom line, the way they provide for themselves and their families is to optimize and increase the marginal return on the ad revenue to keep you swiping down on your Insta feed or your Twitter feed or what have you. And so we need to change the metrics, change the incentives so that um, we're not literally preying on the lives and the mental well-being of our young people uh, and ourselves, frankly. Um, so that is a great example of incentives run amok um, in firms, trillion-dollar valuation firms, paying zero in federal taxes, and literally, in some cases, killing us. Yeah, not absorbing any of their negative externalities. Yes. Ah, bring, mm-hmm. I love the mm-hmm. macro. Yes, we need to <laughs> internalize the costs of our the externalities. Social ills. Yes, awesome. absolutely. Awesome. I'm totally with that. <laughs> well, yeah. that sort of brings it back full circle. Full circle. From uh, swiping on Instagram to your platform. Um, I'm... To, to wrap things up, you mentioned before that uh, you really stay focused on on what you want and what your goal. Mm. And um, I'm curious, uh, what what would you say are your overall sources of, of motivation and inspiration mm. um, that keep you going forward towards your goals? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think one overarching kind of motivation is um how do i guess i selfishly and personally live a life of meaning that a life that matters a life that isn't just one in passing um and for me the way i've kind of operationalized that is um how do we minimize human suffering maximize human flourishing and just put more of us in a position to um kind of live our fullest potential um and that's like my obsession (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so i'm kind of more obsessed with a particular problem or a particular issue um and a set of solutions to tackle that um i don't know what that might be you know two years or three years from now um what kind of my energy and mind will be galvanized around um but right now we're kind of in this moment um and this is apropos of the the great hack (laughs) um which is one of the starkest messages from that movie was in, in 2015 and leading up to the 2016 election, there was a deliberate um, attempt to, quote, break the country. Um, and so, and this is one of the quotes of the movie is, we have to break the country in order to remake it in our vision. And that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this is also a bizarre opportunity um, to really rebuild um, and make a country um, and a system that kind of works for us. Um, so that's the that's the kind of the proximate motivation is how do we capture this rare, rare, rare moment um, to really make a, a country and a system that just works for people. 
that was a great parting thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything else to that you'd like to cover before we let you go? Oh gosh, there's so many things. I, think. <laughs> I feel like we'll have to have a debrief after where we get to talk about all the Netflix shows, and <laughs> get your reviews on some pools in the area. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say so. That, so, so this is going to like Sternies, right, and future Sternies. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, in the midst of like recruiting and and student debt and all of the um, all the messages you get, you know, in launch and in your inbox from OCS or whatever. <laughs> OSC. OSC. OCD. All the acronyms. You're like, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to keep running and running and running and running and running. Like, this is such a beautiful, rare, <laughs> like, moment in time um, where you can, like, like, this is, you know, the collection of some of the most highly agentic, capable, passionate people. Um, and um, if not now, like when, if not here, then where um, to really change your life and change the, you know, change the world around you. So kind of like cliche. But, yeah, but it fits in with but, what you're saying about the country. Now is the time to rebuild it mm-hmm. in the image that we, we want, the aspirational country that we all want. Business school is that similar time. For you have two ourselves. years to rebuild yeah, yourself, really exactly. completely level yourself down to whatever exactly. makes you you and then build up from there. So, Amen. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Thank you for having me. <laughs>